Well, you know, those, uh, those kids were so cute. I think I might just take that Mary home with me afterwards. If no one else would object to that, I think that would be okay. I wouldn't say she belongs to me because kids never belong to you. You know, you just enjoy them for a season, but hopefully your whole life. But, but the Christmas season, uh, we recognize, is a, is a time with family. And it's a time that we often get together with our family. Some of our families are nearby. Some of them are far apart. Some of them get along really well. Some of them don't get along very well. And we all have mixed memories of our childhood growing up and even now as adults uh, growing up. For me, Christmas was always a time of uh, joy and sorrow at the same time and tension. My parents divorced when I was quite young. And uh, we would usually, uh, even up to that point, we would kind of split Christmas between my two sides of the family. But that two sides of the family came a little bit more distinct when my parents actually split up. And the, uh, the first year that we were uh, traveling, my sister, my mom, and I, to my grandparents' house, uh, my mom, single mom driving, uh, all of a sudden, our uh, Mercury, I think it was called a Grand Marquise, if I remember. It looked like a Ford Lincoln, or a Ford uh, cop car. But uh, we were traveling on the snowy roads through the mountain passes from Edmonton to Smithers, uh, B.C., and uh, we came around this corner, my mom driving, my sister and I dozing in the back seat. And uh, the trucker uh, was kind of going down the middle of the road with his high beams on. And uh, my mom swerved to get out of the way. And uh, thankfully, even though it had snowed a lot, the, uh, the trucker or the plows had cleared the snow. So there was a massive windrow. And if that wasn't the case, we probably would have went over the cliff. And I woke up uh, in my childhood imagination thinking that I actually saw our back right tire go flying over the cliff because I don't even know how this happened mechanically, but our tire was just gone. (laughs) And so uh, my mom is sitting there with two little kids in the back seat under the age of 10, uh, crying, scared, and she can't get the vehicle started again, which on the winter road is kind of scary. And apparently this car was fancy enough. They were worried people would hit and run. And so there was a kill switch in the trunk that uh, if you got in an accident, you had to reset this switch. Thankfully, the, uh, the trucker uh, had stopped and uh, fig- made sure we were all okay and was able to figure it out and get us uh, a new tire put on and uh, get us back on the road. But uh, I can only imagine, as a kid, it was exciting. As a kid, it was, oh, that's a great story. But now as I'm a parent realizing, boy, that must have been stressful. I can only imagine how my mom felt. You know, this is her first time. She's stressful driving with two little kids to her, to her childhood home with her parents. And then this crazy thing happens. I can imagine as soon as she walked in the door, she probably just relaxed finally and just cried and bawled her eyes out. But Christmas isn't always an easy time for everyone. Sometimes we go through de- great difficulties, even at the holiday season, and sometimes because it's the holiday season. And so that's why as a church, uh, during this Christmas season, we wanted to do a series based on uh, the great promise from Matthew 1.23 that God is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the recognition with that is that God is with us, not just in all the good times, not in all the times when just when we feel happy, not just when we uh, are going through the best days, but in some of the great difficulties of life. And so last week, we focused on the wilderness experience. We, we looked at how when we're most empty, God can fill us most fully. We looked at the story of Elijah. He had had these great victories. He had these opportunities where God had moved powerfully in and through him. 
And then one more thing happened, and it pushed him over the edge, and he ran away. But he ran to God, and God filled him up. And so this morning, we are looking at uh, that God is with us in the storms of life. So storms are a metaphor for chaos. If you imagine battering winds of circumstances that buffet us and beat us down, when life is totally out of our control, when we can't even fathom what's going to happen next. And sometimes when we're in storms, the sad part is that they're actually our fault. That maybe we ignored some wise counsel, we ignored the warnings of those around us, and we go into circumstances that we should never have been in the first place. But sometimes storms can come out quickly and come for no good reason whatsoever. They can just come out of the blue. And so we see that uh, sometimes we ignore the wisdom of God or the wisdom of those around us, and that can cause us to be in storms. But sometimes we're in storms, not actually for our fault or our mistakes, but because God has us there for a purpose. And so sometimes we're actually there for the sake of others. And so no matter why you're in a storm, don't let the presence of a storm distract you from the purposes of God. A storm can cause us to doubt God and doubt his presence. But even if you're in a storm for seemingly no good reason, God may have the purposes and a purpose that he will redeem for you being in that storm. So our primary text this morning is Acts 27, 20 to 25. And I can say for the first time in a few weeks, uh, it'll be on the screens behind me. But uh, if you have a hard copy Bible, feel free to flip there to Acts 27, 20 to 25, or in your digital iBible. Now would be a great time, and you can keep it open because we'll be uh, in there for most of the, the time here. But it says, When neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them, that's the everyone else on the boat, and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves from this danger and loss. But now I urge you, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of those who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. May God bless the reading of his word. So we're in the middle of the story all of a sudden here, and we're picking up the story of of Paul's life and his ministry, and so it's important for us to understand the context, what's going on in the story here. Paul is on trial, and he's on his way to Rome because he was a Roman citizen. And he had been accused of, doing, uh, of causing riots and causing dissension and causing strife. And uh, the Jews who he was a part of, he was a Jewish man that had now become a follower of what they called at that time the way. He was a follower of Jesus. He had had a powerful encounter with Jesus. And that had led him to, uh, to devote his entire life And to risk his life multiple times following after this Jesus. And trying to convince everyone else that he could about who Jesus is. He had had a radical shift in his life. And now he's on his way to stand before Caesar. Because God had a great plan for his life. His plan was that 
Paul would suffer great many things. And now we're sitting here and thinking, well, that doesn't sound like a great plan. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't uh, ascribe to the I want the great suffering. That's not the hoorah that I think of when a great plan for my life. But uh, God uh, plans to bring him before the most powerful man in the world at that time, the most powerful earthly person, and that was Caesar in Rome. And so he was on his way there, and God promised that even though there was this storm, even though there was this terrible circumstance, that he would get there because that was God's plan for him. But Paul is on this ship, and it's getting buffeted. And before, uh, before uh, this point, Paul, they had been in Crete, and Paul had said that they should stay there. But they ignored that and moved on. And now a storm has been raging for many days. And it says in verse 20, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Back then, they didn't have uh, compasses. And they didn't have, uh, they didn't have uh, the technology that we have now. They didn't have sonar. They didn't have radar. They didn't have these things. The only way for them to navigate was using the sun and the stars. And the storm was so severe, they couldn't see the sun or the stars. They had no idea where they were. They had no idea where they were going. And the storm was so severe that they thought, we're doomed. We're going to crash. We're going to sink. This is the end. This is it. Have you ever been in that place? where the storm has been raging so hard that you've just finally given up hope? Have you ever given up hope? Do you know what that feels like? You're just completely hopeless. Have you ever been in such a hard place that you've given up hope of ever getting out of that place? You think that you'll always be depressed. You think that you'll always be in pain. That you'll always be suffering. There's a great uh, writer who said, calls this the dark night of the soul. Just this absolute darkness. So we can, we can, we've all been in those places where we've suffered and we've hurt and we've felt hopeless. And in verse 21, it says, after they had gone a long time without food. Now, I'm not a sailor <laughs> and I'm not very nautical. And so... I could only imagine what it would have been like being on this storm, especially in a craft like that. And I can definitely sympathize with not eating food at that time. Not only were they depressed and they hopeless, but for myself, if I get on one of our uh, great BC ferries without having a full stomach, I get seasick. And that's even just not a storm, anything. And so I could only imagine if you're on a little boat that's getting tossed and turned and thrown all over the place, how little desire you would have to eat. How little desire you would want to eat. And so the storm was so, desire, so severe, maybe they weren't able to eat. I, I certainly don't think they would have been able to cook anything. Uh, but even just imagining in our minds what it would have been like, this isn't just a fairy, fable or a story. This is a real-life account of something that happened. And then Paul... Finally, seizing his opportunity, it says in the rest of 21, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. Have, have any of you ever been in a, uh, we don't call them fights, but uh, disagreements with a spouse or a friend? And uh, you said you should have listened to me? It usually sounds a lot like I told you so. 
Well, it may seem like that's what Paul's doing here, but I actually, uh, I actually think that he's just, making, he's just making a statement of fact. It would have been better if you listened to me. He's not trying to rub their noses in it. He's not trying to win the argument, but he's just trying to say it would have been better if you listened to the advice. Paul actually was a veteran of shipwrecks, if you can imagine that, if that's something you'd want to put on your resume. Up to this point, Paul had already been shipwrecked three times. So he had experience. If there was, if there was an award for shipwrecks, Paul probably would have won it because most sailors would have given up by then. But Paul did this because he was so committed to Jesus. He couldn't help but get on boats and sail across the world to try and tell people about him. But Paul, knowing in this experience that he has, and it's not, the Bible isn't clear whether maybe God had told him this would happen or if he just knew what would happen because he had experience. He warns them, he said, it's going to be dangerous to sail. But the captain, in his wisdom, and the other people that were there said, no, no, we don't want to stay in this port all winter. We want to move on. And so they move on. They wait for a little bit of a favorable wind, and they move on to a different port that would be able to hold them for the winter. And so uh, sometimes our, our own personal wisdom gets us in trouble. Someone that maybe has uh, more experience or more wisdom or different experience or different wisdom tells us something, but we think we know best. We think, well, no, no, I, uh, that's great advice, but I'm not going to take it. And so sometimes we're in storms of our own making. Sometimes we're in situations that could have been avoided if we had listened to wise counsel. And it's unclear, like I said, whether Paul knew about this ahead of time, but he had wise counsel. He thought it would be unwise to move. So how does this apply to us in in 21st century? I don't think any of us are going to get on a wooden boat and go sailing in the middle of winter. Unless, well, in the middle of winter in Okanagan is, I don't even know when does that start. But... Uh, if, you, if you did, there's not quite the same storms around here. There's a little bit of a breeze, but I've, I don't think there's any typhoons or anything around here. Not that, in my limited experience, I could be wrong. Someone that's been here would be like, remember in 1945, the typhoon? <laughs> but uh, even if we're in these storms of our own making, the way to bring it up to the 21st century is, have you ever been in a situation where someone's giving you advice not to do something? Maybe it's something that you would argue, that's not sinful, that's fine. But then somebody says, well, that's a dangerous thing. Maybe a more mature, a more wise Christian around you says, be careful about this. Be careful about that line. Be careful about this. I used to, uh, the, the old youth pastor I work with, he used, to, uh, he used to have this great saying. He would have students come to him a lot of times and ask him advice. They'd say, well, I'm, I'm dating how, how far can I go in dating and in, in doing things, intimate things, without crossing the line? And they would always ask, where's the line? How, how, how much of this can I do before it becomes sin? How much, of, how much of the world can I do before I've kind of crossed that line and I'm no longer a follower of Jesus? Where, where is that line? And the point that he made is we should never be about trying to find that line because then we're looking in the wrong direction. We should never be looking, how far away from Jesus can I get and still be in the kingdom? We should be turning around and looking at Jesus and trying to get as close to him as possible. But in our own wisdom, we think, well, it's okay. I can do this little thing. I can do that thing. I can make this little compromise, and that's fine. It's not really a lie. It's just a little white lie. It's just a little twist of the truth. 
But if we're following Jesus, it should be as getting as close to Jesus as we can. But uh, sometimes we're in these situations. Someone, someone warned us, someone told us, or maybe we had a check in our spirit, the Holy Spirit warning us, and we've done it anyway. We've made the mistake, and we're in these situations. We're in this storm, yet no matter what, no matter why we're in that storm, we don't serve the God of no compassion, of no love, of no hope. We serve the God of hope. So there is still hope. So Paul says in 22, But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now, again, we have the perspective of we can read this whole passage and go, that's great. But put yourself there. You're in the middle of this crazy storm, and this guy who's a prisoner stands up and says, don't worry. Be courageous. Keep your courage we're all going to live, don't worry, only the boat will get destroyed. And maybe there's someone going, well, I don't even know how to swim, so that math doesn't add up. You know, I'm in the middle of this storm, the winds are blowing, the waves are crashing, the lightning's crashing, so only the ship's going to get destroyed, the only thing that's keeping us alive right now. Yeah, no big deal, right? Thanks, Paul. So it's a little unbelievable. One of the most difficult things about storms is the unknown. We don't know how long they're going to last. We don't know when they're going to blow out. We don't know how much damage is going to get done before the end. And it often seems like they'll never end. That hard situation that we're in in life. That pain that we're in. That suffering that we're in. And they can make us doubt the presence of God. We can think, well, if God really cared, he wouldn't allow this situation to keep going. If God really cared about me, he wouldn't let me going through this. But again, don't let the presence of a storm distract you from the purposes of God. God has a purpose for each one of us. Some of us are serving that purpose, and some of us maybe are running away from that purpose. But God has a purpose and a plan for each one of us here this morning. And it makes a huge difference when we're going through a storm to know that everything will be all right in the end. And that's not the, the pat, if we pray about it, if we, if we, uh, if we name it and claim it, it's going to happen. That if we say, okay, the storm's going to end, it's going to be fine. No, that's not the end I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ultimate end. That no matter how hard and difficult life is, we not, may not know the number of days that have left. We may not know what's going to happen. But if we have faith in Jesus, we have an ultimate hope to rely on. That God is the God of joy and hope. He doesn't allow us to go through things just because he's playing with us. He allows us to go through these things because he has a purpose and a plan that's beyond us. God actually allows us sometimes to go through things so that we can show faith to other people. But the hope that we have, Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Those who, have, who follow Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're celebrating, uh, we're celebrating the Christmas season, which is Jesus come as a baby. But we're 21st century Christians. It's hard for us to imagine what it was like waiting expectantly for the savior to come. We have, we have the advantage of looking back. But we are still in the waiting season. We're not waiting for Jesus to come the first time. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. For the great and yet terrible day of the Lord. Great for those who have faith in Jesus. And terrible for those who reject him. 
And for all of us here this morning, I'm sure we could say there's family, there's friends, there's loved ones that we have that that day will not be great, that it will be terrible. And so we have the purpose, one of the primary purposes that we have is to share our faith with those who need it, to share our faith with those around us. And for Paul, his faith was in Jesus. He, it's, it's so obvious looking at his life. He obviously was so convinced about Jesus because he was willing to, to risk shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck. Paul was beaten. He was stoned with stones. I have to clear that up nowadays. Paul was stoned multiple times. Paul was beaten to the point where they thought he was dead. And he had to escape from people being lowered out of a basket because there was plans to kill him. And yet he kept going. I could only imagine what it was like. I could only imagine what he felt like. But he had that drive, that conviction that one more person needs to hear about Jesus. One more person needs to hear about the hope. But Paul recognizes that these people on this ship, he can stand up there and say, have courage, take courage. But he recognizes that they don't have the same faith that he has. So they need to have some evidence. They need to hear why he has this hope. So he says in verse 3, Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. He belongs to God. His life has been bought and he serves him. He stood beside me and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And almost as an afterthought, And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. And a messenger of the Lord says, I've come. And I'm going to save your life because you need to stand before Caesar and proclaim me as Lord. You need to stand before him and tell other people about me. And he says, oh yeah, and I've also given you a gift. I'll give you the lives of the other people on the boat. You know, Paul belongs to and he obeys God. Jesus had purchased his life with his own life at the infinite price of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And thus, Paul's whole life belongs to Jesus. And his obedience is due to him. So Paul lived and was willing to die his whole life for Jesus, to whatever God called him to. So God, we see through the angel that God is present in the storm. No matter that the storm is raging, it's not that God has removed himself. God is right there inside of Paul through the Holy Spirit and with him. So God's presence is shown by this messenger angel. Now, the call of Paul was to suffer for his name's sake. He suffered shipwrecks, beatings, jail, mockery, stonings. And although a Jew, he tried to proclaim Jesus to the Jews. He, he should have been on paper the, one of the best ones to be able to talk to other Jews because he was uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one of the kind of the elite. He studied, he was smart, he, he knew the Bible. Even if, even if uh, Paul didn't become a Christian, even in the Christian faith, we probably would have heard of him because he was so brilliant. We would have heard of his writings as a Jew. We would have heard about him. But God chose him and allowed him to suffer greatly for his name's sake. But even though he, was, he seemed like he should have been specifically called to preach to the Jews, God actually called him to preach to the Gentiles, to preach who those were outside of the the faith of God, outside of the the bloodline of Jacob. And this actually Paul does remarkably well. 
He has this huge understanding and this huge core of what it means to be a Jew. And yet he's remarkable at preaching to those who have no context for Jewish culture. Who basically just, because Jews actually were meant to keep separate from the world. They weren't even allowed to associate being the homes of other, of other people, of other races, of other uh, religions. So Paul, this person who was supposed to be the elite of the elite of these set-apart people, actually went specifically to preach to the Gentiles. And so the call of Paul, he had to suffer. But he used his suffering as an opportunity to preach about Jesus. So Paul, he's on the middle of this storm. He's just a prisoner that blends in with everyone else. And I, I like to say that Paul uses these opportunities. He's like, hey, look at this. I got an op- audience. So the other 275 people on board, that's a pretty good-sized church right there. So Paul's planted on this boat, and here he is church planting. And he says, this God whom I serve sent an angel, and he gave me a message that don't be afraid. You're going to live, and so is everyone else on the boat. These people that were on this boat had given up all hope. They had nothing. They had probably prayed to their gods if they had them. They had probably done everything that they could in their own power, in their own strength, and they were done. They were finished. And then Paul comes and brings them hope. He brings them his faith and says, I have faith. You don't have faith yet, but I have faith. And my faith will get us through this. This summer, we did a a series on Jonah. And uh, I thought this was a very interesting contrast between how Jonah acts in the Old Testament, and how Paul acts in the New Testament. So some of the contrast between Jonah and Paul. Jonah also was on a storm that was incredible. It was raging, and they were all scared. They were all crying out to their gods and praying. Yet Jonah was actually the cause of the storm. He was running away from God, and that actually caused the storm so that he would be forced to follow God. And then uh, Paul... He's actually in the storm, but it's not his fault. He's not there because he's disobedient. He's there because he's obedient. And rather than being the cause of the storm, Paul is the comfort in the middle of the storm. Instead of being a curse to the people that has brought this suffering and this trial, he's actually courage for them. He brings them courage and hope. Rather than uh, Jonah being convicted, he finally confesses that he had been running away from God. Paul is a counselor. He says, I have faith. I have courage. So rather than Jonah being a bad witness for God, this prophet who wouldn't pray for them, this prophet who was running away from his God, Paul is a great witness. He stands up before them and says, I have faith. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was someone who was calling out conviction to people. But Paul actually in this, in this role fills a priest. He's a priest. He's someone who's interceding on behalf of people. And so I want to focus right now quickly on the priestly presence of Paul. Priests are people in the Old Testament that were, their whole job was actually to prepare sacrifices for the people of Israel. And they were to offer prayers. They were to the fancy theological term to intercede on their behalf. They were the people that were set apart, that were holy, that had rituals that they followed so that they could once a year go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the place where God's Spirit dwelled, and pray for the people. They were the people that would 
uh, offer sacrifices, prayers, and instruct people in the ways of God. They would teach the Bible. They would teach the Torah, the Old Testament, to people. And through Paul's priestly presence on this boat, his presence actually caused these 275 other people to be delivered. Just because Paul was there, they were saved. His presence actually saved their lives. And one uh, author put it this way, The world has no idea how much it owes in the mercy of God to the presence of righteous women and men. The world has no idea how much grace flows from God, how much mercy he shows in circumstances because of the righteous people that love and serve him. People have no idea. If you're a believer, that means Christ dwells in you. That means that the high priest, the one who is called uh, the son of God, the one who has came to make the atoning sacrifice for the whole world dwells inside of you. That's something that intellectually you go, yeah, check, I know that, I've heard that before. But can you imagine that? The Spirit of God dwells in you. The, man, the, the person of God who before in the Old Testament was in the Holy of Holies. And to set that up, the way that they would do it, they had days and days of rituals that they had to do to cleanse themselves. Certain clothes they had to wear, certain sacrifices they had to make. And yet, and this one priest that was selected to go inside the Holy of Holies had a rope tied around his ankle in case he had done something, in case he had missed a step, in case he had sinned, maybe knowing it or unknowingly, in case he, when he came into the holy presence of God, he died because nobody who is sinful could be in the presence of God. Sin and God don't go together. And yet, that Holy Spirit that dwelled in that place dwells inside all of God's believers. The difference between the Old Testament and the New is what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done, the salvation that he has offered, cleanses us. And so that priestly presence that Paul has, that he can actually save the lives of others, is something that each one of us can bring into our relationships. It's something that each person who's a follower of Jesus can do to help other people. It's profound. But it's also challenging. It means that when we're in the middle of storms, that maybe we need to stand up and say, this God that I have faith in, this God that I have hope in, you may not have him, but take courage, because you too could have that faith. So Paul says, 25, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God, that it will happen just as he told me. You know, faith isn't something that we can borrow from other people. You know, if our, if our parents or our grandparents or our friends, they're a really good, faithful follower of Jesus, that's not something that we can just borrow and just lean on. We each need to have our own faith. So for the people on this boat, Paul's faith was enough to start their journey towards God, but it wouldn't have brought them to completion. They each needed to choose in their own hearts, in their own minds, in their own lives, whether or not they too would follow Jesus. But Paul's faith is a testimony to them. Paul's faith in the middle of the storm. How when they were all crying and worried and scared, he stood up courageously and instructed them and told them, So his faith enabled them to have an opportunity to believe in God. What a savior we serve. That God would place Paul in the middle of that storm and allow that to happen so that he was able to share about Jesus.
Now, what's required to be saved? The gospel starts with bad news, actually. The, the truth of the gospel is that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is sinful. And without the redeeming work of Jesus, there's no hope. That's where it starts. But the hope is found in Jesus. That those who repent, which means to, to apologize, which means to turn away from sin, which means to turn from sinfulness, to turn from that line of sin and turn towards Jesus in faith and in hope, then that is what brings salvation through Jesus' work. So Paul did his part to share the word of God. Paul shared with those sailors. He shared his faith, but it was up to each one of them whether they would believe it or not. Now, one cool thing that I was thinking about when I was reading this is something that Paul actually doesn't do. Paul is in the middle of this crazy storm. Paul is in this place where they're all scared, they're worried, they're fearful that the ship is going to be destroyed, that they're going to lose their lives. And notice what Paul doesn't do. He never prays for God to stop the storm. Now, by this point, he would have been caught up on the life of Jesus. He would have learned that Jesus, when he was in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, stood up and said, peace be still. And the wind stopped, the waves stopped. It was a powerful miracle. And Jesus promises that those who are his followers can do even greater things than him. Because we all each have the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus lived, by following the Holy Spirit. So Paul would have known that that was a possibility. But he never prays for that. He doesn't even pray for it by saying, stop this storm if it's your will. He just doesn't even pray for it. And I thought that was weird until I really started to think about it and dig into it. And I realized that in each of the cases that people do miracles, including Jesus, it was not only for comfort. It wasn't for comfort. It wasn't for their convenience. It wasn't just to help them out and make their lives easier. It was actually as a way of showing other people and confirming what they were teaching. So Jesus used the example of feeding the 5,000 people to talk about how he's the bread of life. And he used that as an opportunity to teach. And so Paul could have stopped the storm, and the sailors probably would have applauded, and they probably would have listened. But he didn't, because the storm actually provided a better opportunity to share about Jesus and to share about God than the miracle of stopping the storm would have. Because people can dismiss miracles. And so the question is, why is Paul in this storm? Why is Paul in there? Whose fault is it that Paul's in the storm? Did Paul do something wrong? Paul did his best to avoid this storm. Paul recommended, he said, we shouldn't sail. He, He tried his best to avoid it. And God doesn't prevent it. God doesn't stop the storm. He actually does, though, preserve Paul and others' lives. So why does God allow it to happen? I think the only thing that we can ask or realize is that Paul did nothing wrong. Paul was actually there because he was obedient. And he was actually in the storm for a purpose and a plan. And so sometimes we blame God for the storms that we're in. We think, God, why are, you, why are you putting me through this? Why are you allowing me to suffer through this illness? Why are you allowing me to suffer through this pain? 
Why are you allowing this person? Why did you take this person away from me? Why did you allow this circumstance to happen? But if we stop and consider Paul's circumstance, that through this storm, God redeemed it to make it so he could share the hope of the gospel with several hundred hundred people at one time. And actually, uh, to fast forward to later on in the story, if you read ahead, they, they land on this island, and uh, Paul gets bitten by a poisonous snake. And the, the people on the island realize that he was a convict, that he was a prisoner. And so they whisper to themselves that, oh, see, he escaped justice from the storm, but now he's getting justice done. They were in very much retribution mode, but he takes off the snake, throws it in the fire, and he never dies. And so then they're amazed that, that he is able to, to not be killed by a poisonous snake. And then Paul goes and heals a ton of people, including the, uh, the ruler of the, the island's uh, family. And so through that opportunity of them getting shipwrecked, rather than just saying safely and ashore, God redeemed it to do far more. He redeemed it so a whole island could hear about Jesus. And so don't let the presence of a storm distract you from the purposes of God. God may have you in a storm for a purpose and a plan that he wouldn't be able to or you wouldn't be able to do unless he put you there. So the question that we should ask is who can we share with in the middle of our storms? God allows these storms to happen to fulfill his purposes. You know, some of the storms that I've gone through, as I mentioned earlier, my divorced parents. When I was a kid, that was very uncommon. I was one of the uh, very few, if not only, kid in each of my classes growing up. My, my parents were divorced. And sadly now, it's the opposite. If somebody is still has their uh, same parents that they were born with, they're unusual. Most people have blended families and mixed families. And so that enables me to talk and to share and to have compassion and understanding for those two who have either gone through divorce themselves or are children of divorce like I am. That's something that I experienced great pain growing up. And if I, was, if I had been a Christian when I was growing up, I probably would have asked God to remove that from me. But he's able to redeem that pain so that I can share with other people. Another storm that Karis and I have experienced was uh, years of infertility. Waiting and waiting and suffering and praying and praying. And now, that's when, we, when you're in the middle of something, you can actually notice there's so many other people that are experiencing that. There's so many other people that are experiencing pain and hardship from infertility. And so that's something that you, we can share with as well. I... I Another one is uh, one of the first uh, few weeks that we were in Penticton, I went to, we got invited to a party at a friend's house, brand new friend, Kirsten had met her, and then she invited her to her birthday party. It was really, uh, really nice, and weather was nice, so wearing flip-flops and shorts, I walked up to one guy uh, whose name was Mark, and we looked at each other's legs, just happened to, and went, oh, we got matching scars. It was mirror image scars. And we started talking about it and realized, okay, he had broken his tibia, I had broken my tibia. He did his playing soccer, I did mine playing soccer. So we compared the scars and see, saw which parts were worse, and we instantly had a camaraderie. We instantly were able to say, well, yeah, my wife had a little baby too at the same time. You know, Liberty was, uh, I think she was just over six months old at the time when I broke my leg. And then he also had a little baby that was uh, not quite crawling yet as well. And so... 
we instantly were able to, to bond just over that pain and illness. And it was something we were able to laugh over, even though at the time I cried a lot during that time, or grunted manly, actually. <laughs> but uh, but what, what experiences have you had that you wouldn't, you wouldn't choose to go through again, and you wouldn't necessarily ask God for, but maybe you wouldn't ask him to take it away, because it allows you to share that with other people. You know, our stories that we go through, our lives, our pain we experience, sometimes that's the best way to share with other people. Some of the hardships, some of the hardest, darkest nights of the souls are the things that actually can allow us to share faith with Jesus. And actually, if we, uh, if we are going through something extremely difficult and painful, and others are around us and looking at us, and we are walking through that, and yet we still have hope, and we still have joy. And I'm not talking about fake, put on a fake smile, but real joy that only God can give. Then that itself is a testimony to other people. That itself. We're, we're told uh, in the New Testament to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Be ready to explain the hope that we have. So do you have hope? Do you have joy? So we can survive the greatest storms in life, not because we are amazing, and not because we alone are powerful, but because Jesus can be strong, and Jesus can be powerful enough for us. In Psalm 16, 8, David wrote, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Knowing that God is with us, even through the worst storms of our life, even if we don't understand why, even if we don't like it, even though we're miserable and sad and we wish God would take it away, we have the ability to not be shaken because we can lean on Jesus and he will give us the strength. And that's not a pat answer. That's not the easy answer to say, well, God will just take it away. That if we believe enough, God will do it. You know, God is God and I'm not. God is God and you're not. Sometimes we don't understand, but we can still trust. We can still hope and we can still lean on him for joy. And if Jesus is your foundation and your hope, if your hope is built on nothing but him, if your hope is in him, then no matter how much the wind blows, no matter how much the waves crash around you, no matter what is happening, you can take courage. Psalm 46, 1-3 says this, God is our refuge and our strength, and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quiver or quake with their surging. God is our refuge and our strength. You know, one of the things that uh, the kids have been learning in the uh, Sunday school and I always find out because Liberty loves to tell me after, is that uh, uh, we are to build our homes on solid rock, not on sinking sand. And you know, that's a really cool parable that Jesus told, but it's a great illustration. You know, around here that works a lot with the floods. If we think about it, if you build your house on the beach, it would have probably washed away by now right on the sands with those waves that came, with that rising waters. But if your, hope and your, if your hope and your life is built on Christ as your solid rock, 
that no matter what happens, even if the rest of the house blows away, you'll be stuck to that foundation. Even if nothing else is left and all you have is Jesus, you still have enough. Even if you have nothing left to give, even if you have no more hope, no more help, no more to give, if you have Jesus, that'll get you through. So where do you turn when you've lost all other hope? Turn to Jesus. He's the only thing that'll get you through. Now, I wish I could uh, have five minutes with each of you right here this morning to ask, where are you with Jesus this morning? But I think through the Holy Spirit, I can ask that and he will talk to you. Where are you with Jesus this morning? Is he your hope? Are you, are you a long-time follower and lover of Jesus? Jesus is the lover of your soul. Do you love him back? If so, then rejoice. Be filled with joy, no matter what you're going through. Don't just plaster on a fake smile. Be real, but recognize that Jesus can give you joy. He's a giver of good gifts. Ask Jesus for joy, and he'll give it to you. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then I'm going to ask you, why not? Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will give you what you need. Our whole life is filled with trying to fill the voids in our lives with other distractions, with other things that won't satisfy us, that just fill us up. No matter how much we get, we'll never be filled. Maybe it'll distract us for a while. Maybe it'll give us five minutes of pleasure, five minutes of joy. But if you have Jesus, he'll wreck you for anything else in your life. If you have that true hope, that true joy, nothing else will satisfy you. So what is the Lord speaking to you this morning? His Holy Spirit is speaking. Don't leave here this morning without dealing with the business of God. So as the worship team comes up and leads us in our closing song, before we head downstairs for the feast, and I, I won't forget to pray this time, let me pray for us. Dear Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are hope, that you are joy, that you are our strength. I pray that no matter where each of us are here this morning in our relationship with you, that we would turn to you, Jesus. That no matter if the storm is raging or in the middle of the calm, and we're in the middle of the peak of the mountain right now, Lord, no matter what we are going through, help us to love you, to honor you, to glorify you, and to share our faith and our hope and our courage with those around us, Jesus. Jesus, we're not strong enough. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. Sometimes we still make mistakes. Sometimes we still make bad choices. But you are enough. May you be our solid rock. Help us to get anything out of our life that is not of you, Jesus. Help us to follow after you into holiness and into righteousness that is not our own, but is from you, Jesus. So I thank you. And now as we sing this great traditional carol of the church, Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In your name we pray. Amen.